definitional piece is it's, it's an organization that's really deeply committed to place for long term. In rural areas, when you think of rural anchor institutions, they're organizations that across multi-districts, multi-counties can implement programs, bring in strategies, and really do the programming work across geographic boundaries. Hello and welcome to episode 58 of Rural Matters. We are the leading podcast on rural education, health, and business in the United States. I'm your host, Michelle Rathman, and when I'm not hosting Rural Matters, you can find me speaking around the country on matters of rural health, including leadership, culture improvement, strategies to improve community stakeholder engagement, and of course, you know, we're really focusing on, on addressing our nation's rural hospital closure crisis. Now, you can find where I'll be speaking next when you visit me at michellerathman.com or on Twitter at MRB Impact. And of course, as always, we hope that you'll follow us on the podcast, on social. We're easy to find. Just search for at Rural Matters Pod. So as always, we're really excited to have you tune in with us, whether you're listening on iTunes, Google, Stitcher Play. And as always, we hope that you'll just subscribe to Real Matters and receive new episodes automatically. Just kind of one less thing that you have to do to worry about in your busy day. So today's episode, we're going to take a deeper dive into an area of persistent poverty uh, in Appalachia and how one college, Berea College in particular, is helping to provide increased access to education in the area uh, from early education to college. And to join us for this conversation, we've got Executive Director Dreama Gentry. Gentry, I hope I said that right, who heads up a dynamic group at the college to tell us about their amazing work. But just let me give you a little bit of background about Dreama. So since 1999, she has led Berea College's educational outreach into Appalachian, Kentucky, as the executive director of Partners for Education, which has an annual budget of more than $40 million. Now, she designs and implements projects to build on four core strategies, which is engaging families, lifting educational aspirations, building academic skills, and connecting college and career. By leveraging funding from federal programs such as Gear Up and Promised Neighborhoods, Partners for Education provides opportunities and support to more than 50,000 rural Kentucky youth. So good morning, Dreamy. Welcome to Rural Matters. Good morning, Michelle. Thanks for inviting me on. Oh, we're so glad to have you. You know, so let's before we kind of dive into the programs and all the great work that you're doing, can you give us a bit of a snapshot of the factors that make Berea College so distinguished? Because it's not like your average, you know, college that you hear about. You you all do some pretty amazing, I think, more mission minded work. Just give us a snapshot of what that looks like. Yeah, I'd love to because I'm a Berea alum and Berea really was a life-changing place for me, which is one of the reasons I'm back here doing this work. Uh, Berea is a radical institution. We were actually founded in 1855 Hmm. to educate blacks and whites, men and women together. And that was 10 years before the Civil War. So the radical nature of Berea continues today. We have around 1,600 undergraduate students here on campus. All of our students have extremely high academic promise, but they also all come from low-income homes. And so we only accept students who uh, come from poverty. Um, But the cool piece is that they all receive a tuition promise scholarship, so they pay no tuition. They all work here on campus. And it really is a place that, uh, again, our motto, God hath made of one blood all peoples of the earth. It really is a place where students work together to um, 
become who they can be, right? And and Berea really does break that cycle of uh, generational poverty we so often see. You know, I, I have to say, personally, I've been to the campus. I have seen firsthand the students and the work that they're doing. And it just, it really, when you step onto the campus, just from a personal perspective, it is such an inspiring place. You know, it, um, I think that you can just feel that service heart and the energy uh, as you're walking around. And so let's just talk a little bit about some of the distressed counties um, in the region. So from the statistics that I downloaded, it shows that approximately 38 counties were considered economically distressed in uh, the region in fiscal year 2019 with pockets of distress in other areas. So just give us a, a little bit of the lay of the land. You talked about the fact that the student profile, one in three students are of uh, students of color, and the mean family income of first-year Berea students is under $30,000. So the work that you're doing, so let's just talk a little bit about the work you're doing around the Partners for Education and the region itself. Tell us a bit about that particular mission. Yes, yeah, so we're a department of Berea College, and so we work here within the college. And um, our work really is to expand that mission out to the Appalachian region. So we're, we've got partnerships with school districts in 31 Appalachian Kentucky counties. Um, and our partnerships are really cradle to career to think about how to, can we as a partner and anchor institution in Appalachian Kentucky help schools and communities provide educational opportunities for students? Because mm -hmm. we really do believe that education can break a cycle of poverty and can create opportunities for economic mobility. You know, the data tells us that, you know, a, a college degree actually leads to, you know, those with, with a college degree have longer life expectancy, they're more fulfilled uh, in addition to economic mobility. So our work is to partner with schools, with communities, and we're uh, focusing that work in 31 of those distressed counties in Appalachian, Kentucky. Um, to really see how we can ensure that all kids have an opportunity for educational success. So what does a partnership with schools look like? <clears throat> what is that model? Um, you know, if you had to describe it in an elevator pitch, what does that partnership entail? So it's, it's sitting down with, with school leadership and community leadership, looking at the data of the school, mm -hmm. looking at uh, kids' data on third grade reading, eighth grade math, high school graduation, and college going. Um, determining what type of strategies actually could move the dial on that and turn the curve and enable more young people to be successful. And then it's us really looking and, and um, finding resources uh, to bring in to do that type of work and programs. Mm -hmm. And most of those resources and programs we bring in are federal programs like Gear Up, like Promise Neighborhood, like the AmeriCorps program. So you, you began um, as, a as a college access organization, but I, as I understand it, your work has expanded exponentially in recent years. So talk a little bit about that change and what kind of prompted and motivated that change. Yeah, so when I started this work um, here 23, 24 years ago, it really was around how do we get kids excited about the opportunity of college? How do we get their parents excited um, and planning for their child to go to college? And it was focused on college access. Uh, what we realized uh, after doing that work, what I realized a few years after doing that work is we're doing a disservice if we get young people into college and they're not prepared to succeed in mm -hmm. college or mm -hmm. if they don't have plans on how college will lead them to a career. And so really starting to think about how do we shift from college access to college success, ensuring that all students who enter college are prepared to be successful and have a career plan. 
uh, about six years ago, started really thinking harder about that and realized that it starts in the early childhood arena, right? Mm -hmm. Kids need to enter kindergarten ready to learn. They need to be reading at third grade level. Our college access work had been starting at sixth grade, which for a lot of folks think that's early. But what I realized, it wasn't nearly early enough. And so we now have developed partnerships throughout the region to start even thinking about early childhood, uh, elementary school, and all the wraparound services. So it really is cradle to career is what we call it. Mm-hmm. And it engages the community. Well, I, I think it's interesting because we've had a recent conversation on the podcast just about rural workforce development. And what you're saying really squares with the conversation that I've had on this in the past, as I said, because if we if we wait until sixth grade or middle school, I think to your point, what you're saying is we're missing out on opportunities to uh, have early earlier interventions and, you know, to really provide the family unit with some hope and promise as well. Um, I'm just curious, just thinking about your work with um from the cradle aspect, those younger ages, how do you interface with parents? I mean, what is what is the mechanism in place to to make sure? I mean, obviously, for a child as young as first, second, third grade, the parents play such a pivotal role in their learning experience. So what can you share with us about the work that you're doing in that area? So our work really starts with home visiting programs and working with parents of of birth to um, five-year-olds. And we started doing that by really realizing we had a partner here in Appalachia that had been doing that work well, and that is the Save the Children U.S. programs. They have uh, Early Steps to School Success, which is a proven model for home visiting, where local community members are trained as paraeducators. And then those local community members, many of them Uh, themselves from that same community in the same place that they're working, they go into homes, visit with parents, and uh, work with the parents on how the parent can be preparing the child to think about, you know, recognizing their letters, recognizing their numbers, uh, and creating this uh, curiosity in their children Mm -hmm. uh, with the goal that the kids enter kindergarten uh, ready at, um, at the readiness level. And so the early work we do is with Save the Children and expanding and replicating their early steps program. We also realize looking at data the kids who have no early childhood experiences um, are really entering school at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. And so we work with some partners and developed uh, what we call our readiness buses. And we actually named them. The kids named them. We had two, Sunny and Rosie. And uh, Sunny and Rosie are small buses that are beautifully painted on the outside. And um, they visit homes. Uh, there's two staff on the buses. One's an early childhood person who works with the, the two-year-old, the three-year-old, the four-year-old, all the kids in the family. And the other person on the bus works with the parent on, or the caregiver, in many cases, it's a non-parent, but a caregiver, on how they can work to support the child, but also how they can work to support their own outcomes. And wow. we read it as families, right? And so it's really meeting parents and families where they are and making sure that those that are in the most um, distressed circumstances are really getting the high-touch support they need. That is amazing work that you all are doing. I'm curious. So, obviously, uh, you talked about earlier that the the fact, uh, as you said, about $100,000 over four years is the tuition promise scholarship. So, of course, I have to ask this question. um, How are you all funded? I mean, the work you're doing is amazing. And I can imagine that it could, you know, you could put your finger on the map anywhere in the United States in a rural community and find what you're doing. If if they could replicate what you're doing to be, 
you know, just an outstanding way to um, support local communities. How, how are you funded? How, how does this um, really great intervention, this work that you're doing, how is that made possible? So I think speaking from the college piece first, uh, the mm-hmm. college is funded. Um, we have a, an endowment that allows us to fund a large percent of those tuition scholarships for students. So students don't have to pay that tuition. We also uh, are really um, committed to cultivating friends of the college, folks that can support and, and fund this work. So it's interesting. If you think about our alumni, like I'm a Berea alum, most of us are just uh, the first generation out of poverty. And so our alumni, you know, we're still trying to take care of ourselves and our families and, and, and that piece. And so it really is developing friends of the college and then our endowment that allows the college to do the work. So when we started the Partners for Education work, we knew that we could not pull on those resources because Mm -hmm. the critical mission of the college is really doing that work and providing that life-changing experience for those college students. So what we've done is we're able to, we write a lot of federal grants, um, we submit the grants, and when we're funded, uh, that supports the work. Uh, unfortunately, we've not been able to engage at a high level philanthropy in our work. Uh, I think to some extent, philanthropy and corporate funders have forgotten about rural America and rural Appalachia. Mm-hmm. And only a small amount of philanthropic dollars comes into this area. And that's something we're wanting to change. We're wanting to try to engage with philanthropy and, and let them see that you can do work in rural places at scale. Um you just have to make the investment. Well, I think you know, hopefully after hearing you and all the great work that you're doing, hopefully we can spark some interest with that. Um, so we're going to take a break in just a moment. But first, um, when we come back, I want you to talk a little bit about um, you use the term in your literature about anchor institutions. So I want to learn more about that. And I think that part of this is uh, just so remarkable what I'm hearing you say, but let's talk a little bit about some of the nuts and bolts of implementing your programmings. How do you build capacity? And um, you talked eloquently about, you know, just community partnerships. So I want to talk a little bit about aligning those systems and then we'll get a little bit more into some of the nitty gritty about your programs, the World Accelerator and so forth. Um, but at first, I do want to take a really quick, short break to acknowledge our sponsors for today's episode. We're so fortunate to have with us again the Foundation for Rural Service, or FRS, working in cooperation with NTCA, the Rural Broadband Association, and its members. Of course, they sustain and enhance the quality of life in rural America through generous community grant programs, scholarships for students entering college or technical school, a summer learning experience, in Washington, D.C. for high school students, nonpartisan issue-based white papers, and other educational programs, FRS focuses on educating rural youth, encouraging community development, and introducing policymakers to challenges unique to rural communities. You can find out more about all the great things they're doing at FRS.org. Of course, I also want to thank Berea College and its Partners for Education for their support of Rural Matters as well. Partners for Education, as you've been hearing, whose annual Rural College Access and Success Summit brings together approximately 400 teachers, principals, superintendents, college access professionals, and other rural leaders to share ideas and strategies for their ensuring rural youth have the opportunity to successfully transition from high school to college and career is fast approaching. In addition to 36 breakout sessions and six plenaries, there will be four pre-session workshops focused on starting a rural gear up, family engagement, 
trauma-informed schools, and design thinking. This 2020 summit is co-hosted by College Success Arizona and will be held in Scottsdale, Arizona on April 26th through the 28th. For more information about what sounds to be like a great summit, you can visit berea.edu slash PFE. And then finally, we're also very pleased to welcome Phoenix Mobility Rising as a new partner. Phoenix Mobility Rising creates mobility solutions, technology, educational program, and global communities around the common goal of transportation for all. They provide world-class mobility management, accessibility, and equal access assurance, training and technology, and support uh, each community partnership and deployment. Phoenix is dedicated to supporting mobility for vulnerable and underserved populations, and you can learn more about them at phoenixmobilityrising.org if you'd like to learn more, as I said. So let's get back to our uh, discussion with Adrema Gentry, and we're talking about some really amazing, innovative programs coming out of Berea College and the Partners for Education. And, um, you know, you 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 say in your literature, you talk about an anchor institution. So I want for our listeners to kind of um, understand uh, the definition of when you're using the term anchor institution and what it means to do your work in rural communities. Yeah, and we've been really thinking a lot with leaders across the country around what does anchor institutions mean in rural places. Mm-hmm. And so our definitional piece is it's, it's an organization that's really deeply committed to place for long term. So if you think about Berea College, since our founding in the late 1800s, we've been committed to Appalachia. And so as Partners for Education, that's our deep commitment to place. Uh, We also, I think in rural areas, when you think of rural anchor institutions, they're organizations that across multi-districts, multi-counties can implement programs, bring in strategies, and really uh, do the programming work across geographic boundaries. Mm-hmm. So our work around college access is in 31 counties, more than 70 schools. So we can do that and we can achieve scale in a rural place because we're looking at the region of Appalachian, Kentucky. Um, Anchors also do more than just go in and do programming. They really work to build capacity of local leaders and local communities. Uh, So when we do our work in Appalachian, Kentucky, we're not sending Berea College staff out to all these communities to do the work. We've opened offices throughout the region. We hire local people, local residents to do the work, but also to lead the work. And so we're providing some high quality professional development and jobs to local people in the communities that we're working in, that we're anchoring. And I think the other component of anchor is systems that you think more than just programs and even building capacity, but systems. How do we align systems? Mm -hmm. How do we make sure that multi-sectors are together? How do we think about policy barriers and funding barriers? So it's programs, capacity, and systems. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned, you know, policy barriers as well, because we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the fact that, you know, policies, you know, persistent poverty, um, you, you know, it, it's such a complex, complex issue. And policy plays a, a big role in that. Would you agree? Oh, yes, I think it does. And I think uh, it really is that mindset, right? We have to get to realizing that when a community has been in poverty, like persistent poverty communities, I think is it. 30 years in poverty or something like that, uh, it really leads to systemic dysfunction and, and systemic change is needed. 
Yeah, and so let's talk a little bit about the work that you're doing in success stories, because as you talk about the idea of, of you write grants, you receive it, but we really need to expand the reach and get more philanthropic dollars involved with this. So I would imagine that people's ears perk up when they hear about some of your success stories, yourself included. Um, can you give us kind of a, a feel for some of those, some high, high level success stories um, from someone who has participated in your program? I'm not sure if you've been able to track someone from cradle to career, but what does that look like for students who, um, you know, when they leave, when they leave Berea and provided they don't come back to work there because it's such a great place. But what are some of the placements that you're seeing and, and the success beyond their time with you? Yeah, so I think it, it, you know, I immediately go to the students that we've we've done this work with. And so we have students that I think of one um, student in particular who grew up in one of our communities, was raised by a non-parent, was raised in a low-income household. But this student had such promise uh, and was able to engage in our youth leadership program, which we call Promising Appalachian Leaders in Service, PALS. So this student became a PAL in the uh, ninth grade, uh, started to have opportunities to not just think locally, but also work with our governor's wife on policies around kinship care and bring her lived experience as somebody who was being raised by a non-parent into that dialogue, was able to visit colleges. We were were able to take uh, our pals to colleges in New England and visit some of the Ivy League colleges. And again, uh, you know, we had the academic supports in the schools to ensure these students were supported academically. So this young woman is now a junior at Harvard and she's committed to Appalachia and she's committed to place and she's committed to issues like kinship care. So she's just one of many students that we've impacted over the years that really have used the opportunity to develop their own skills and their own opportunities, but also to think about giving back to place and community. Uh, so the individual wins are those students, right? And, and there are so many of those students that have uh, that are still in out there doing great work, and I think will be the leaders of our Commonwealth in the future. Um, I think on the community level, we've had some opportunity. I, I think of Owsley County, Kentucky. We have a a group. We have a wonderful staff person there who's worked with us for a few years. Her name is Sue Christian, and Sue is from Owsley County. She knows the community. She was leading our family engagement work, but she did more than that. She started developing the capacity of the parents and, and, the, and the family members that were raising other people's children, started to bring them together regularly. Uh, that group started out called, being called a grandparents as parents group, and they decided they didn't like that. They came up with another name, AROC. Adults uh, raising uh, others' children. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they worked to get AROC as a 501c3. And so now it's being led by the community and it's really thinking about how do they support the adults in the community that are raising the children of the community. And so Sue's work started as part of her job with us, but she took it to a different level. And now there's this strong emerging nonprofit there in Owsley County that's really thinking about the work and sustaining the work. I mean, you really touched on, you know, the work that you're doing is so holistic in nature. I love what you said earlier that it's radical. At the end of the day, really, it's so logical. It makes so perfect sense to me as I hear you talk about it, how important it is that we consider all these factors. Um, and as I'm hearing you say, you know, these these are the barriers that can be removed if we, you know, put our heads together and all all the great team that you have um, 
putting our heads together and saying, you know, what are, we know the challenges, what are some of the solutions? And it just seems to me that, that you all have done a, a really outstanding job of, of figuring out how to pluck those barriers, move them one at a time um, through a more holistic community approach. Um, so talk to me about this, what I'm reading here, the rural accelerator, and this is really how you're sharing your model uh, with other communities. Um, and, and I, and I love that you have that service minded heart, if you will, that you are willing to share this with others. So what's the rural accelerator program? Uh, what's that about? So it was, uh, you know, around 2016, we started to, to really think as rural people doing work in rural places that we were being misunderstood. And I was starting to get these calls from organizations from other places that wanted to come in and basically tell us how to do the work better. Um, and most of them were not rural people that wanted to come in and, and, and think about this. So we realized we had not been sharing the successes and that across the country, rural communities had bright spots and best practices, but they weren't sharing the successes on a national stage. So our Rural Accelerator Initiative is an opportunity working with Save the Children and Strive Together, which is a national network, to identify potential anchor organizations um, in other places of the country that are rural. So we're working in the Yakima Valley in Washington State oh, with wow. a, a university called Heritage University. And over the next three years, it's working with Heritage, sharing our model that Berea College uses in Appalachia and to see how Heritage University could refine that model uh, to impact their work there in the Yakima Valley. Uh, so that's the we're calling it a rural accelerator. It's, it's identifying and looking for other anchors in rural places that might mm -hmm. be interested in this model. Uh, the rural accelerator is one piece of the work. We also are doing the Rural College Access Summit, which brings leaders together from rural places across the country to share best practices and strategies, because we have to be sharing what we think as rural people needs to happen. Um, Otherwise, I think other people will come in and try to fix the problems for us. And we know that doesn't work. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that conference, because this is something that I've just learned about um, from our interaction and in reading about. So this is a thir the third annual Col Rural College Access and Success Summit. So as I said from the very beginning, you've, you know, you're convening this really large, diverse group of stakeholders. Uh, around rural education. What are some of the things, if you can share with us off the top of your head, what are the, some of the things that uh, we can expect to come out of this year's conference? And I'm curious about, you know, maybe what, since it's the third time, uh, what are some of the outcomes from the first, uh, uh, the first two summits, uh, if you could share some of that? Yeah, so the first two summits were in Lexington, Kentucky, because when we first had this idea, we thought it was a radical idea, and we didn't know if people would show up. And so uh -huh. the first year, we had close to 300 people show up from 24 states. Wow. And one of the, the biggest things that impressed me and, and convinced me we had to keep doing this was the folks who came to me and said, you know, I was sitting in that breakout session, and it's the first time that I've ever been in a session where we didn't have to spend 15 minutes talking about the fact we were ruled before we could get to our solutions and to our challenges. Uh, so it really being in a room where everybody was rural uh, resonated. And so that's an important thing. And I think practitioners were craving that. Um, we also had comments about, wow, I never thought about rural being this diverse because rural people operate in their rural community. And they don't realize that, you know, in, in Appalachia and Kentucky, my community might look very different than their community in the Delta mm -hmm. or along the border. 
And so realizing the diversity of rural America, but again, how we might look diverse, we're still doing the same type of work and the solutions will work across those diverse places. So that was two of the big outcomes, right, is is starting people to understand the diversity of rural, but also under being able to share and think with other folks from rural areas. So this year's summit, we're excited to take it on the road um, to Arizona. College Success Arizona works in uh, across the state of Arizona, but uh, specifically thinking about some of the rural areas of Arizona and how to move access and success. So at last year's summit, we said, who wants to host us next year? We want to go somewhere other than Lexington. And they were the first ones who said, yes, we want you to come to Arizona. We want people to see what rural Arizona looks like. Uh, and to hear what's happening in our communities. So this year we'll be in Arizona. Uh, it's outstanding. And, and how proud you must feel. I mean, this is not just, you know, this is you and a, and a whole group of really committed people, but that there is this interest now. And what, what do you what, what do you foresee happening um, from your trip to Arizona? What are you hoping personally, some of the outcomes to be that you can move forward and, and grow this summit year after year? So I think what we're going to see in Arizona is what does it look to take a deep dive into a different place? Mm -hmm. Um, So the first couple of years, we were right at the edge of Appalachia and we focused a lot on best practices and what was coming out of Appalachia. This year, we have a significant number of breakout sessions that are focused on Native and um, Latinx communities and what's working on college access in those rural places. Uh, We're hoping each year as we take this summit to a different place, we'll still have a deep dive into the rural place. Next year, 2021, it will be New Hampshire. Oh, wow. Uh, and that New England issue is very different, right? The, the rural context there is very different. Uh, we also are starting to see folks networking and connecting with each other at these summits. And I'm hoping to start seeing uh, collaborations come up about across the country, right? Where somebody might be doing a great mentoring program in Appalachia, but somebody in the Delta starts doing it. My ideal is then they can actually go to a national funder and say, look, we're doing the same thing and you can get scale, but you're going to have one group doing it in Appalachia and one doing it in the Delta. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent point. You know, coming up with some really good promising practices. And as you said, just because the region might, you know, the geography might be a bit different at the end of the day, what you're talking about in terms of education and and the needs um, and the programs, I I think it's excellent that you are serving as a model for that. Um, One of the things I want to make sure that we talk about, because obviously this is something really important to me is you say that we need to have a national dialogue about creating healthy rural communities. And uh, what's your definition of healthy rural communities before I go on to the next question? Yeah, so my definition there would be uh, probably different than somebody like you who work in the health field, but vibrant rural communities, communities where families have and, and youth have all of their needs met. Mm-hmm. So it's thinking about, if I think about my family being a healthy family, I think about our economics, I think about our actual health, but I also think about our intellectual uh, stimulation and having other opportunities to have a civic engaged family. Mm-hmm. And so when I think of that, I think of that's what I want for communities. Yeah, because, you know, we take we're talking about persistent poverty and we know that persistent poverty absolutely impacts an individual's personal health. We know that it impacts their ability to receive education, you know, because obviously if you don't have um, the means, uh, you know, a safe 
environment uh, to learn in and so forth. It does impact your ability, you know, um, for for your whole life. And so I just really, really appreciate hearing about these programs. Um, we want to hear from you when the summit is over and hopefully it meets your expectations. We'll be following some of the case studies after the fact. Now, for folks who want to learn more about the summit, as I said, they can go right to the Berea website and you can just search for um, Partners for Education and all the great links are there. Um, I'm going to ask you one last question because I, I, I try to do this at the end of each episode because of obviously rural matters. We're focused on all the things that we've been talking about today, but we always want to know, I mean, I clearly understand why rural matters to you. You're very passionate about your work. And it's, that's come through on this conversation. But what will you say to those who maybe don't work in the rural space or have not not all too familiar with rural America? Why should the issues affecting rural America matter to them as they sit there contemplating these things today? And I go back to the individual piece. And I think that um, it really is one of the main equity issues of today mm -hmm. that young people growing up in rural America should have the same opportunities as young people growing up anywhere. I think with our promised neighborhood work, we talked about how a zip code should not define your outcomes. So where you're born, where you're, you live should not cap you. You should still have the same type of opportunities. And so rule matters because these are children, these are families, these are people, and all people should have that access to opportunity. Well, we thank you and Bria College and, and, and all that you're doing um, through the Partners for Education. What an outstanding program. And for our listeners, I just really encourage you to go to the website and learn more about all the ways that they are impacting in, in such a positive way uh, the lives of young people and families in the region. So I do want to just, again, thank you, Dreama, for being a guest on the podcast today. Um, we'll have a lot more information about it on the website when this particular episode is dropped. I also want to acknowledge and thank our Rural Matters marketing partners. They are so important to this podcast. They include the Center for Rural Affairs, Community Hospital Corporation, Foundation for Rural Service, the Journal of Research in Rural Education, Learning Blade, NTCA, the Rural Broadband Association, the National Rural Education Association, the National Rural Health Association, and Ohio Small and Rural Collaborative, and AASA, the School Superintendents Association, and of course, the National Rural Assembly. These are, are great, as I said, partnering organizations, and they help to bring rural matters to you in this powerful platform, this forum for the discussions that are affecting our rural communities today. Now, if you'd like more information about Rural Matters or to suggest a guest or a topic, you can just email us at podcast today. That's the number two, podcast today at gmail.com. Of course, we appreciate if you'd rate the podcast on iTunes and of course, tell your friends and colleagues. I also want to uh, make sure I thank Michael Levin Epstein. He's the producer. And I want to just thank all of you for coming back and listening. We will talk to you again next time on Rural Matters. Mm -hmm.